cobblestone roads to actually a pretty beautiful Massachusetts October day, not too cold. Here in New Bedford, Massachusetts, at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. I grew up in Massachusetts, and if you ask me, I thought I knew pretty much all there was to know about the place. I thought I'd been to all the dope museums and knew at least surface level about the history. But recently, a friend of mine suggested that I check out the New Bedford Whaling Museum to learn a little bit about one of the biggest industries in my home state's history. I knew whaling was a thing. I mean, I went on a whale watch when I was in high school, but I had no clue how massive a role whaling played in the economy of southeastern Massachusetts. And the industry was diverse over a hundred years before diversity became a buzzword. It provided opportunities for the less privileged and fueled the rise of New Bedford, a place that at one point was the richest city in the country. As it turns out, the New Bedford Whaling Museum was only a 20-minute drive from my house, so I figured I should check it out. My name is Baudelaire, and this is Atlas Obscura a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, y'all are joining me on my visit to the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts, a place that tells the story of how whaling led to the meteoric rise and the eventual decline of a New England city. And that has a much more layered and complicated history than I ever expected. More after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. The New Bedford Whaling Museum is a massive three-floor brick building in New Bedford, Massachusetts. It sits right on the harbor that over 150 years ago would have been packed with ships returning from and going out on whaling voyages. On my visit, I did a walk around with the museum's chief curator, Naomi Slip. And as soon as I got in there, I was struck by these massive whale skeletons hanging over us. These things were so big, I was convinced they had to be fake. Well, one thing I got to ask you yeah. about those. yeah. This thing above us, this is like, mm-hmm. this is a real whale skeleton? <laughs> exactly right. So uh, you have four articulated whale skeletons above you hanging from the ceiling in our main gallery. The one oh right here is a humpback whale. The biggest whale skeleton was 66 feet long, and it was only a juvenile. 
Naomi tells me it would have grown to over 100 feet had it lived to adulthood. Unfortunately, it was killed by a container ship in the early 2000s. The ship's crew didn't even notice they were dragging the whale until they arrived at port. But whales being harmed by ships isn't anything new. For two centuries, whaling has devastated populations, even though it's technically outlawed in most countries. Take the South Atlantic humpback whale, for example. In the late 1950s, their population got as low as 440 total whales left. Researchers estimate that before whaling began in the 1700s, their population was around 25,000. So New Bedford, um, by 1840, was the richest city in the United States. Oh, wow. Um, and it was really... Like richer than New York City? Yes. <laughs> and it was all because of whaling. Wow. Um, wow. What the whaling kind of ship owners and uh, captains did was that they vertically integrated the industry. Mm. So oftentimes I think we think about that as sort of a 20th century industrial move, like mm. Ford, right, owned mm. the rubber and he owned all the parts. Amazon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the whalers did it the best. <laughs> they wow. owned the rope works. They owned the ship. Um, they built the ships. They uh, owned the spermaceti candle makers. They owned kind of every part wow. of the effort. So all the money came back to the kind of same core center in Bedford. What made whaling such a huge industry was the oil that came from their bodies. As we looked up at the 66-foot whale skeleton hanging above us, we could see a small bucket at the front of the whale. Turns out, this whale that's been there for about two decades still had oil coming from its bones. So you see the brown? Yeah. That's the actual oil from the blubber of the whale's body that's still sitting in the bones over 20 years later. Wow. And if you look down there, there's a drip pan. Yeah. And a little tube that collects the oil that's still leaching from his body. The whale oil was used as a lubricant that oiled the cogs and gears of the Industrial Revolution. If you know anything about the Industrial Revolution, you know it changed the world. So the necessity of whale oil only drove up its value. But capturing an entire whale seemed like a really labor-intensive way to get some oil to me. But it turns out this helped the whaling industry when it came to diversity. Whaling was uh, one of the few opportunities for upward mobility for a lot of different people. Mm. New Bedford became one of the most diverse cities uh, in New England, and it had the largest free black population outside of Boston by 1840. Um, So whaling was, was a big part of that. Whaling voyages would last on average about three to five years, with the longer voyages lasting about a decade. These whaling ships would bounce around ports all over the world. Some people didn't come back. Some people would say, I'm, I'm going to hop off in Hawaii, or oh. I'm going to you know, hop off in Cabo Verde. Um, and they would pick up crew along the way, too. So you had this really kind of international life mm. on the ship for those, those many years. Naomi and I then moved on to an exhibit I was really excited about. We walked into this massive room, and right in the center was a scale model of an actual whaling ship called the Lagoda. Well, it's a half-size. It's a model that was built inside of this building in 1916, but by people who were hired from the docks of New Bedford at the time who had built and rigged actual whaling vessels. To be honest, it looked a lot bigger in person than it did online. It's more than 80 feet long, and the main mast in the middle sticks up 50 feet in the air. It's over 80 feet long, and the sort of the main mast in the middle uh, extends up 50 feet. There's only a couple inches between the ceiling here in the building and the top of the mast there. And so how many, like, whalers would be on here? So you would have had, again, a a crew on average of about 20 Mm. uh, on a whaling vessel. You got to really like each other. Yeah. 
It's not that many people to be gone two, three years. I mean, mutinies did happen. Yeah, I'm sure. They weren't unheard of. I'm sure. But then I noticed something that, to me, was even more interesting than the Lagoda. Right next to the model ship was a pretty large picture of a man, woman, and two small girls. A black family that lived on a whaling ship for an entire voyage in the early 1900s. Joseph Gomez, the man in the photo, was first mate, the position right below captain. That position wasn't so uncommon for black men to have because, as Naomi explained to me, the rigors of life on a ship required a lot of collaboration. The kind of sort of segregation, the kind of sort of outward expressions of racism that might have been really common on land were not they weren't safe on shipboard, right? Mm -hmm. You had to collaborate. And so that provided opportunity, I think, for um, for individuals of all backgrounds on whaling vessels mm -hmm. to find more freedom than they would have had at home. I'm not saying that their ships weren't... Uh, or, or it's still racist. You know, it yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, but there was greater opportunity. And uh, one of the big things that, uh, especially in the pre-Civil War period, Whaling offered opportunities for individuals who had self-emancipated hmm. to find um, possibility for escape that they may not have otherwise. So hmm. a lot of individuals who were able to self-emancipate came to New Bedford. Frederick Douglass is a great example, right? He hmm. leaves Maryland, he comes to New Bedford first, and he's hmm. here for a number of years. He never ships out on a whaler, but other people do because mm. you were given seamen's protection papers mm. because whaling oil was a part of the kind of commercial engine of the U.S. economy. Mm. If you were on a whaling ship, you were you had federal protection from the government that wow. meant that you were safe on that ship and you had mm. a piece of paper that said it. So no matter the status you were born into, mm. if you were on that ship, no one could touch you. Wow. So a whaling voyage that takes three to five years, mm. you get on that boat and you have that piece of paper. For three to five years, you're good. Right? Yeah. Um, and that was in part because certainly during different moments in the history of whaling, the War of 1812, or different moments of international aggression, um, whale ships were in danger mm. from other countries of, of you know, piracy or privateering um, or having their cargo um, or even the individuals on the ship, right, being taken or captured. Mm. So that piece of paper was really important. Now, at this point, I'm realizing the history of whaling in New Bedford extends into Black history, and that was a pleasant surprise for me. I mean, Massachusetts doesn't exactly have the amount of acknowledged Black history that some other states have. But it turns out this was just the beginning of how the history of whaling bleeds into Black history. If any of you remember our Providence Island episode, we talked about a man named Paul Cuffey. He was an abolitionist whose parents were a formerly enslaved man and a Native American woman in the mid-1700s. Despite the obstacles against a free Black person during his lifetime, Cuffey would eventually become a massively successful businessman. Paul Cuffey felt that free Africans in America should have a place in Africa to repatriate to. He would go on to be an essential part of the story of how the colony of Liberia was created. It just so happened that the Paul Cuffey exhibit was in the room right next to the Lagoda. And it turns out, whaling was an essential part of his story. Paul Cuffey always saw the sea as the path to freedom for himself and his people. He went on a couple whaling voyages as a teenager, and by the time he came into adulthood, he bought his own whaling vessels and would go into partnerships with other free black people to buy more ships. By the time he was 50, Paul Cuffey owned several ships of various sizes, a house, and land. 
While Naomi and I were walking around the Cuffy displays, there was actually a middle school field trip in the room learning about the history at the same time I was. Wow. So it's just interesting that he was able to get to that level of, like, having his own whaling ships and voyages that he wasn't on. So he had, like, a staff. Oh, yeah, he was a massing capital. Yeah, exactly. So he's just And then his kids get into the business as well. His children um, go into the business, and and they're kind of carrying on that legacy, and it becomes a multi-generational business. Wow. So if it weren't for whaling, specifically whaling in New Bedford, we might be able to say that Liberia today would not be it could, like there's a there's a chance that that story might go a little differently because yeah. Paul Cuffey was such a vital part of that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So without him, his involvement in whaling, yeah, who's he, to say? You know, right? He he might not have achieved that position that gave him the sort of respect and clout to be able to do the advocacy work that he did. Mm-hmm. Also on the wall in the exhibit was a quote from Paul Cuffey. It reads. I am of the African race. I feel myself interested for them, and I am favored with the talent I think I am willing that they should be benefited thereby. As we walked away from the Paul Cuffey exhibit, we walked past displays that showed the tools whalers used to capture whales, the instruments used to extract the oil, and even a room dedicated to some of the activities whalers would take part in to pass the time on their long voyages. Naomi told me at the beginning of my tour that in the 1850s, New Bedford was the richest city in the U.S., which, of course, it isn't anymore. It turns out that the decline of whaling is directly tied to that. In the 1850s, kerosene and petroleum oil began to replace whale oil. With those alternatives now available and decreasing whaling populations making whales harder to find, whaling as an industry started to die out. Profits started to decrease, which made the trips not worth it anymore. And as the industry declined, so did its capital city, of New Bedford. As our tour came to a close, Naomi and I went to the third floor of the museum, which also had a balcony looking over the New Bedford Harbor. Like a couple hundred years ago, it's loud and busy, ship traffic coming in and out. New Bedford isn't known for whaling anymore, but it's still one of the largest fishing ports in the Northeast. You can't ignore the impact that whaling had on New Bedford and the nation at the industry's height. It turned a city less than a third of the size of Boston into a hub for an industry that powered the Industrial Revolution. What surprised me about the museum is in telling the story, the story of this vital industry, it included individuals that built their lives and helped those around them through the whaling industry, from people like Joseph Gomez to Paul Cuffey. And that's the part that I take the most pride in. The New Bedford Whaling Museum is open every day from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Some exhibits are permanent, while others are constantly changing, so I would definitely check out their website before you make your visit. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. Our production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And my name is Baudelaire.
No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long, pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024 Carnival Corporation, all rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama.